0: Welcome, I'm Doug Morgan, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense, where we hunt for the truth in the topics you're not supposed to talk about, Christianity and politics. When someone says the words, a Christmas story, what do you think? Well, many people think of the 1983 Christmas comedy of a young boy named Ralphie who attempts to convince his parents, his teacher, and Santa that a Red Ryder BB gun really is the perfect Christmas gift. (laughs) I even saw the other day, as we were driving around looking at Christmas lights, a leg lamp in the window of a house. But I wanted to bring you a true Christmas story that really did happen, and one that still has meaning over a hundred years later. In an article from the Smithsonian Magazine, Mike Dash writes, Even at the distance of a century, no war seems more terrible than World War One. In the four years between 1914 and 1918, it killed or wounded more than 25 million people, particularly horribly. And in popular opinion, at least for less apparent purpose than did any other war before or since. Yet, there were still odd moments of joy and hope in the trenches of Flanders and France. And one of the most remarkable came during the first Christmas of the war, a few brief hours during which men from both sides on the western front laid down their arms emerged from their trenches and shared food, carols, games, and comradeship. Their truce, the famous Christmas truce, was unofficial and illicit. Many officers disapproved, and headquarters on both sides took strong steps to ensure that it would never happen again. While at last, though, the truce was magical, leading even the sober Wall Street Journal to observe, what appears from the winter fog and misery is a Christmas story, a fine Christmas story, that is. In truth, the most faded and tattered of objectives, inspiring. That's what the Wall Street Journal had to say. And the the first signs that something strange had happened or was happening occurred on Christmas Eve at 8:30 p.m. an officer of the royal irish rifles reported to headquarters this quote, "germans have illuminated their trenches are singing songs and wishing us a happy xmas compliments are being exchanged but am nevertheless taking all military precautions he wrote further along the line the the two sides serenaded each other with carols. Um, The Germans uh, had silent night, uh, being met with a British chorus of the First Noel. And Scots met cautiously in No Man's Land, the the shelled wasteland between the trenches was called No Man's Land. The the war diary of Scots guards recorded that a certain private merker said this, quote, met a German patrol, and was given a glass of whiskey and some cigars. And a message was sent back saying that if we didn't fire them, they wouldn't fire at us, unquote. <laughs> the same basic understanding seemed to have sprung up spontaneously at other spots. For another British soldier, Private Frederick Heath, the, the truce began late that same night when, quote, all down our line of trenches were there came to our ears and greeting unique in war. And this is what the greeting was. English soldiers, English soldiers, a Merry Christmas, a Merry Christmas. <laughs> then as Heath wrote in a letter home, the voices added this, quote, Come out, English soldiers, come out here to us. For some little time, we were cautious and did not even answer. Officers fearing uh, treachery uh, and and ordered the the men to be silent. But up and down our line, one heard the men answering that Christmas greeting from the enemy. How could we resist wishing each other a merry Christmas, even though we might be at each other's throats immediately afterwards? So. We kept up a a running conversation with the Germans, all the while our hands ready on our rifles, blood and peace, enmity and fraternity, war's most amazing paradox. The night wore on to dawn, a night made easier by songs from the German trenches, the pippings of uh, Picallos, and, and from are broad lines, laughter, and Christmas carols. Not a shot was fired. Several factors combined to produce the conditions for this this Christmas truce. By December 1914, the men in the trenches were, were veterans, familiar enough with the realities of combat to have lost much of their idealism that they had carried into war in august and and most longed for the end of the bloodshed the war they had believed would be over by christmas yet there they were in the christmas week still muddied and cold in in battle and then on christmas eve itself several weeks of mild but miserably soaking weather gave way to a sudden harsh frost creating a dusting of ice and snow along the front that made the men on both sides feel that little something spiritual was taking place. Just how widespread the the truce was is really hard to say. It was certainly not general. Uh, There were plenty of accounts of fighting continuing uh, through the Christmas season in some sectors, and others uh, of of men uh, fraternizing uh, to the, the sound of gun firing, uh, nearby, but one common factor seems to have been that Saxon troops, universally regarded as easygoing, were the most likely to be involved and to have made the first approach to the British counterparts. Quote, We are Saxons. You are Anglo Saxons, one shouted across the no man's land. What is there for us to fight about? is what they would say. The most detailed estimate made by Malcolm Brown of uh, the British's Imperial War Museums is that the truce extended along at least two-thirds of British-held trench line that scarred the southern uh, Belgium area. Even so, accounts of a Christmas truce uh, referred to, to a suspension of hostilities only between the british and the germans the, the russians on the eastern front still adhered to the old julian calendar in 1914 and hence did not even celebrate christmas until january 7th while the french were far more sensitive than their allies to the fact that the germans were occupying about a third of france and ruling french civli- uh, civilians with some harshness it was only in the the british sector then that troops noticed a dawn um, at dawn that the Germans had placed small christmas trees along parapets of, of the of the trenches slowly parties of men from both sides began to venture toward the barbed wire and that that, that segregated them and, and until rifleman Oswald Tilley told his parents in a letter home this he said literally hundreds of each side were out in no man's land shaking hands. <laughs> Communication could be difficult, and Germans, German-speaking troops, uh, British troops were really scarce. But many Germans uh, had been employed in Britain before the war, and frequently in restaurants. Uh, Captain Clifton Stockwell, an officer for the Royal Welsh uh, Fusiliers, uh, who who found himself occupying a trench opposite of the, the ruins of a heavily shelled brewery wrote in his diary of, quote, one Saxon who spoke excellent English and who used to climb in some uh, Erie in, in the brewery and spent his time asking, how is London getting along? <laughs> how was Guthrie Mellar and, and uh, Gaiety, <laughs> he would ask, and so on. Lots of our men had blind spots at, at at him in the dark. And at which he laughed one night, I came out and called, who the hell are you? (laughs) And, and once came back the answer, ah, the officer, I expect, I know you. I used to uh, be the head waiter at the great central hotel. (laughs) So there was some familiarity there. Of course, only a few men involved in the truce could share the reminiscence of London far more common was an uh, interest in football or soccer which by then had been played professionally in Britain for a quarter of a century and in Germany since 1890s perhaps it was inevitable that some men on both sides would produce a ball and freed briefly from the confines of the trenches take pleasure in kicking it about what followed though was something more than that for if the story of the christmas truce has a jewel it is the legend of the match played between the british and the germans which the germans claim to have won three to two by the way the the first reports of the contest surfaced a few days afterwards on january 1st 1915 the times published a letter written from a doctor Uh, attached to the rifle brigade, who reported, quote, a football match played between them and us in front of the trench. Uh, The brigade's official history insists that no match took place because it would have been most unwise to allow the Germans to know how weakly the British, uh, British trenches were. And uh, but but there was plenty of evidence that soccer was played that Christmas Day, mostly by men of the same nationality. But in at least three or four places, between troops from the uh, opposing armies, it took place. And most the most detailed of these stories comes from the German side. The reports that the uh, the 133rd Royal Saxon Regiment played a game against. British troops. According to the 133rd war history, this match emerged from the, quote, droll scene of Tommy Unst Fritz uh, chasing hares and emerging from under cabbages between the lines and then produced a ball to kick about. (laughs) Eventually, this developed into a regulation football match with caps casually laid out as goals, and the frozen ground was no great matter then we organized each side into teams lining up in motley rows the football in the center the game ended 3 to 2 for fritz <laughs> exactly what happened between saxons and and the scots is really difficult to say but <clears throat> some accounts of the game bring in elements that were actually dreamed up by robert graves a renowned british poet uh, he was a writer and, and a war veteran who reconstructed the encounter in a story published in 1962 in graves version the the score remained 3 to 2 to the to the germans but the writer as a sardonic uh, fictional flourish so he kind of embellishes a little bit at the end uh, the reverend jolly uh, our padre acted as ref to much Christian Charity, <laughs> he writes. Their outside left shot and the deciding goal, but he was miles offside and admitted it as soon as the whistle went. <laughs> the real game was far from a regulated fixture with 11 players aside and 90 minutes to play. In in the one detailed eyewitness account that survives, uh, Albert, uh, in, in an uh, in, in a interview not given until about well in the 1960s, Lieutenant uh, Johann uh, Neiman, a Saxon who served with the 103rd, uh, recalled that that on Christmas morning the mist was slow to clear and suddenly, more orderly, my orderly threw himself into my dugout to say that both of the German and the Scottish soldiers had come out of their trenches and were fraternizing along the front. I grabbed my binoculars and looked cautiously over the parapet, saw the incredible sight of our soldiers exchanging cigarettes, snops, and chocolate with the enemy. Later, a British soldier appeared with a football, which seemed to come from nowhere, and a few minutes later, a real football match got underway. The the Scots marked their goal mouth with their strange caps and we did the same with ours. And it was far from easy to play on the frozen ground. But we continued, keeping rigorously to the rules, despite the fact that it only lasted an hour and that we had no referee. (laughs) A, A great many of the passes went wide, but All the amateur footballers, although they must have been very tired, played with huge enthusiasm. (laughs) So what a a kind of a neat account there. For Niemen, uh, the novelty of getting to know their kilted opposition matched the novelty of playing soccer in no man's land. Us Germans really roared when a gust of wind revealed that the Scots wore no drawers under their kilts. And hooted and whistled every time they caught an impotent glimpse of one posterior, along to belonging to one of yesterday's enemies. (laughs) But after an hour's play, when our commanding officer heard about it, he went uh, and ordered, he sent an order that we must put a stop to it. A little later, we drifted back to our trenches and the fraternization. Ended, the game that Neilman recalled was only one. Actually, uh, of many that took place up and down the front. Attempts were made in several spots to involve the Germans, uh, the Queen's ministers. Uh, one of one private soldier wrote home, "Quote had a football out in front of the trenches and asked the Germans to send a team to play us, but neither considered the ground too hard." He, Either they considered the ground too hard, as it had been freezing all night and was a plowed field, or their officers put the bar up. (laughs) But At least three, and perhaps four, other matches apparently took place between the armies. A sergeant in the uh, Argyle and and the uh, Sutherland Highlanders recorded that a game was played in his sector, quote, between the lines and the trenches. And according to a letter home published by the Glasgow News in January, uh, on January second, the Scots won easily four to one. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Albert Wynne of the Royal Field Artillery wrote of a match against a German team of the Prusians and Hanovers that was played near uh, Ypres. That game ended in a draw, but the Lancaster. Fusiers, occupying trenches close to the coast near La Tourlette uh, and using a um, a ration tin as a ball played their own game against the Germans and according to their regimental history lost the same uh, lost by the same score as the Scots who encountered the hundred and third hundred and thirty third and that game of course ended in a three to two win for the Germans. <laughs> It it is left to a, a fourth recollection, uh, given in 1983 by Ernie Williams of the Cheshire Regiment to supply a real idea of what soccer played between the trenches really meant. Although Williams was recalling a game played on New Year's Eve after there had been a thaw and plenty of rain, the description really chimes with a with the little that is known for sure about the game played on Christmas day. This is what he wrote. He said, ball appeared from somewhere. I didn't know where, but it came from their side. They made up some goals and one fellow went in goal. And then it was just a general kickabout. I should think there were a couple of hundred taking part. That's a big game, right? I had to go at the ball. I was pretty good then at 19 and everybody seemed to be enjoying themselves there was no sort of ill will between us and there was no referee and no score no tally at all it was simply a melee nothing like the soccer that you see on television the boots were wore uh, the, the boots that we wore were a menace those great big boots we had on And in those days, the balls were made of leather, and they soon got very soggy. And of course, not every man on either side was thrilled by the Christmas truce. An official opposition squelched at least one proposed Anglo-German soccer match. Lieutenant uh, C.E.M. Richards, a young officer serving with the East Lancaster Regiment, Uh, had been greatly disturbed by the reports of fraternization between the men of his regiment and the enemy, and had actually welcomed the return of good old sniping late on Christmas Day, as he put it. He said, quote, just to make sure that the war was still on, he was thankful for hearing the sniping. Uh, That evening, however, Richards uh, received a signal from battalion headquarters telling him to make a football pitch in no man's land by filling up uh, shell holes, etc., and to challenge the enemy to a football match on the 1st of January. Richards recalled that, quote, I was furious and took no action at all. But over time, his views actually mellowed. He said, I wish I had kept that signal, he wrote in later years. Stupidly, I destroyed it. I was so angry, and I would now have had a really good souvenir. <laughs> so, anyway, there were those that weren't exactly thrilled with what what happened. Uh, in, in most places, though, uh, up and down the line, it, it was uh, accepted that the truce would be purely temporary, and men returned to their trenches at dusk, and in some cases summoned back by flares, but for the most part, determined to persevere the peace and, and have at least that until midnight. Uh, there was more singing, and in at least one spot, presents were exchanged. Uh, George Edie of the Rifles had become friends with a German artilleryman who spoke good English, and as he left, this new acquaintance said to him, Today we have peace. Tomorrow? You fight for your country, and I fight for mine. Good luck. (laughs) Fighting erupted again the next day, though there were reports that some sectors of uh, hostilities remaining suspended until the new year. And it does not seem to have been uncommon for the resumption of the war to be marked with further delays of mutual respect between enemies. Uh, in the trenches uh, occupied by the royal french fusiliers uh, captain stockwell uh, qu- said quote climbed up on the parapet uh, fired three shots in the air and put up a flag with merry christmas on it at this his opposite number uh, Hauptmann von sinner uh, appeared on the german parapet and both officers bowed and saluted. Von Sinner then also fired two shots in the air and went back to his trench. Um, The war was on again, and there would be no further truce until the general armistice on November of 1918. Many, perhaps close to the majority of the thousands of men who celebrated Christmas uh, 1914 together, would not live to see the return of peace. But for those who did survive, the truce was something that would never be forgotten. And this Christmas, I would say, let's let's give us let's give thanks to God. Let's definitely give thanks to God for all the many blessings that we have today. World War I was brutal, and there are so many stories from World War One that it was, it was just one of those times when technology really hadn't caught up with, with things. And, and it was just such a brutal, brutal war. And yet among those terrible fighting conditions of that war, we had individuals who took time out. Even then, even amongst all of that, these, tr- these troops took time to stop their fighting and celebrate Christmas together. Let's give thanks for what we have today in our country. You may agree, you may disagree, but definitely love to hear from you on it. And of course, you can always uh, go to UncommonSensePodcast.com to do that. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast is a production of Morganite Communications.